I'd like you to turn now to the Word of God as it was read earlier on in Matthew's Gospel and particularly in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, that final section in that chapter. And in fact, it's very interesting. If you have a red letter Bible, like I was talking to the children, and you compared chapter 24, 25, with chapters 5 to 7. In chapters 5 to 7, you have what is known as the, I've forgotten the name of it, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there's only two verses in black at the very beginning and two verses in black at the very end. And all the rest is in red. And it's very much the same with Matthew 24 to 25. The reason I refer this to you is because every word of chapter 25 are written in red and in fact the only words not spoken by Jesus are found in the first four verses of chapter 24 and all the rest are in red. Now we're not saying that Jesus' words are more important than any other words, but we are saying that, as we said to the children, the commission tells us we've got to proclaim these things that Jesus said, and these things are very important. Now, in particular, the passage we're looking at tells us about an event that everyone here and indeed all the world will be involved in. We're being given a preview of a day that you will be involved in, in the future. And the event I refer to is the one that's described in this reading, beginning with the words, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now before we focus on these words, I want to think briefly about the context in which they were spoken. The whole of chapter 24 is a history of some of the events that lead up to this glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus. A small part of that history was accomplished during the lifetime of the disciples that he spoke to almost 2,000 years ago. Now Jesus' first words to his disciples in chapter 24 were, You see all these Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone 
upon another that will not be thrown down. Now the disciples had pointed Jesus to this wonderful building, the temple. And it was one of the greatest buildings of that time. And that's what Jesus refers to. And he's referring to the total destruction of that building in Jerusalem. And you'll find that the first part of chapter 25, at least the first 28 verses, focus mainly on that event. And in these verses, his main concern is to prepare the disciples of his generation to be ready for that event that's given in response to the disciples' first question. Verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? And then... What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And in answering this question, Jesus is pointing forward to an event that hasn't happened yet. An event that is to take place in the future. Now, The first section, verse 29 to 35, may seem a bit confusing when you first read it. And this is especially true of the words of Jesus in verse 34. If you look at it, verse 24, chapter 24 and verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Until all these things take place. Now, did Jesus mean that all these things would happen during the lives of his disciples? Or did he only mean the events surrounding the destruction of the temple? Now, in the light of the verses that follow, Jesus is drawing a contrast between the time during which all these things take place and another event that he describes in verse 36 as that day and hour. And it's a twofold contrast. First of all, he's talking about things that will happen in their lifetime. And then the second contrast is between things uh, that they can be certain about. There are things that they can be certain about. He says, when you see all these things, this is verse 33, when you see all these things, You know that he is near at the very gates. But then, this is contrasted with a time that is hidden from all of us. Verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels 
of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, some aspects of Jesus' teaching concerning his coming, second coming may seem a bit confusing. Occasionally, it's difficult to be sure when Jesus talks about events leading up to the destruction of the temple and when he refers to his second coming. Yet, there are two aspects of his second coming that are crystal clear. We can't make any mistake about them if we believe what Jesus says. First of all, no one except God the Father knows when this event will happen. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And Jesus then tells us it will be just like the great flood that took place in the days of Noah. If you look at verse 38 and verse 39 of chapter 24, Jesus says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we're being told, first and foremost, that this event is something we cannot know when it will happen. We just don't know when it will happen. But secondly, Jesus makes it clear that this event will be an event that every follower of Jesus, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be looking forward to that event. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be ready for that event. Even though it will take everybody unawares, Jesus commands his followers to be vigilantly looking forward to and prepared for that event. That's what he meant when he said in verse 42, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Yes, you do know he's coming, but you don't know when. And Jesus then likens his coming to a thief in the night. Now, as you may well know, a thief doesn't send you a letter, a warning, saying, I'm coming tonight to break into your house. He doesn't do that. He plans to break into your house and wants to keep it secret. But if you know that he plans to break into your house, then you're going to keep awake and you're going to stop him. Now, we cannot and we don't want to stop Jesus coming. But we can make sure 
we are ready. And that really is the whole purpose of this great long discourse of Jesus. He's wanting to make sure that all his children are looking forward to this event and that they're prepared for this event. And he goes on to make this abundantly clear when he concludes his warning that he will come like a thief in the night. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now if I told you Jesus is coming tonight, you'd be very welcome not to believe me. Because I've got no right to tell you that. I don't know. Nobody knows. But I do know he's coming. And I do know that he could come tonight. Now I'm not saying he's coming. But he could come tonight. And I think it's important when you realize that since Jesus said these words, even in Peter's lifetime, that was one of Peter, Jesus' disciples, there were people who said, Where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, say, he's not come. Can't be true. He's not come. But if you believe Jesus' words, even though it's almost 2,000 years ago that he said these words, you're going to believe that he'd come in an hour that you don't really expect him. That's exactly what Jesus wants us to believe. Because that's the truth. But even if we don't expect him. He may come at any moment. And we need to be ready for this. And again this is so important that Jesus goes on in the next chapter. Chapter 25. To encourage all his followers to make sure that they are ready. And he does this by telling two parables about this event. The first parable symbolizes the danger, and it's a very real danger. The danger of thinking that you're ready when you're not ready. And you've got ten virgins. Outwardly, they seem equally prepared. They're waiting for this wedding feast that's about to happen. And they all seem the same at first. But there's a difference. And we're told the difference. Five are wise and five are foolish. And the tragedy is the difference doesn't become apparent until it's too late. By this time the foolish ones realize they haven't any oil in their lamps they need to get some and they go out to get it. And while they're out getting it, the bridegroom comes. They rush back. They're not ready, but they rush back and they knock at the door and they're shut out from his presence. The Lord tells them, I don't know you. My friends, have you ever thought that one day God might say that to you? I don't know you. You profess that you know him. But there may be a day when he will say, I don't know you. And so, 
That's a solemn warning. And Jesus is saying, are you ready? Does he know you? Do you really know him? There can be no greater tragedy in this life than the tragedy of thinking that you're ready for the Lord's coming when in fact you're not. So the great question we ask is, how can anybody be sure they're ready for the Lord's return? How can they be sure that they know the Lord and the Lord knows them? And that's what Jesus answers in the second parable. In the second parable, Jesus likens his return to a man going on a journey, verse 14, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, when Jesus left this world to return to his Father in heaven, it can be likened to this happening. And if you or I belong to Jesus, we are like one of his servants. While he is in heaven, he has entrusted to us his property. And this property is likened to talents of money, which we are to use for the spread of his kingdom on earth. He doesn't entrust the same sum of money to each servant. Some have more, like the servant with five talents. Some have less, like the servants who were given three or one talent. And the amount given to each servant is in accordance with the servant's ability to trade with this money. Now, this picture language is intended to show us how a true servant of the Lord will use his talent. He will use it. He'll use what's been entrusted to him. The first two servants immediately start to use their talents. And each of them managed to double them. And so when the Lord came and settled his account with both of them, he praises them. And he calls them both good and faithful and richly rewards them. They knew and loved their master. But see the contrast there is between these first two servants and the third. What did the third servant do? with the talent that the Lord gave him. In verse 25, we're told, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He neither knew nor loved his master. And in spite of being entrusted with a perfectly good talent of money, he refused to use it. And when the Lord settles his account with his servant, he rightly condemns him as Wicked and slothful servant. Verse 26. Now even if he was afraid of his master, he could have used his master's money without any risk of losing it. His master tells him this. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now you see the difference. The Lord's true servants are those who will be ready when the Lord returns. Now is this Lord who spoke the words we're thinking about your Lord? Now in one way he is the Lord of every one of us. Just like all three servants shared the same master in this second parable. Don't forget. 
The master praised the first two as good and faithful servants, but he condemned the third one as a wicked and slothful servant. In other words, two of the three were true servants of the Lord. And all of us are just like these three servants in the parable. We owe all that we have to the Lord. You owe your life to the Lord. All your faculties to the Lord. Your parents, everything you possess comes to you as a good and kind gift from the Lord. You can like it or not. You can like or believe it or not. The Lord Jesus Christ is your creator. God. And all that you are and all that you have is his property. And whether you like it or not, he's your Lord and your God and you're his servant. And God's word plainly teaches that each of us, one day, when the judgment comes at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the all-important question is simply this. Do you bow the knee now? Do you willingly serve the Lord now? Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are his servant, and one day he's going to ask you to give an account of your service. And you've got no choice in the matter. He created you to be a servant, and there's no option. One way or another, you do serve him, and one day you'll have to render that account. And what kind of servant is he going to declare you to be? Will you be a good and faithful servant? Or will you be a wicked and slothful? My friend, each one of you here this morning, there's no more important question that you need to ask and answer. Am I a good and faithful servant? And the reason why this is so important is one day the Lord's going to answer that question for you. And you'll have no quibbles. You can't argue with his answer. Now, the wonderful thing is this, that you're still living in a day of grace. And if, in the light of what we're thinking of this morning, you recognize yourself as a wicked and a slothful servant, that you haven't been using what God's given you for him, you've been using it for yourself, it's not too late to have that change. But when that day comes, when the Lord returns, when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, that verdict of Jesus will never be changed. And that's why this preview is so important. That's why I said at the start of the sermon, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is an event that all of us here will be involved in. 
It's an event that none of us can escape. And it's an event that may happen sooner than we expect. And it's an event that you can and need to be prepared for. Now we're ready to look at the main point of this passage. This passage that we have given to us in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And we're going to think about this as we ask and answer four questions, four very simple questions that the text tells us the answer to. First of all, how will he come? How will he come? He will come seated on his glorious throne. Just think for a moment, what an amazing contrast to when he first came to this world. Jesus, who was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was born into this world. And as we know, he was born in a cattle stall and laid in a manger. Very, very humble position. But notice the contrast. When he returns, it will be in glory with all his holy angels surrounding him. That's exactly what Jesus told the high priest in answer to the demand he made of him. The high priest said in Matthew 26, 63 to 64, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' reply was this. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of the heaven. And that was considered blasphemy. And that was the cause of his death, according to them at any way. He's blasphemed. They didn't believe that. But again, the Apostle John predicted in the final book of the Bible, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation 1.7 Now let me just point out something that's very obvious. This is a visible coming. There's nothing secret about it. The whole historical list of people who've ever been born will be there to see it. Now you may remember when Jesus led his disciples out to Bethany, the disciples witnessed him going up to heaven. And we read in Acts 1.10, they were gazing into heaven as he went. And I think probably the best word that comes to my mind is they were utterly spellbound. They'd seen this figure rise in the air and went up and up and up and up and they were watching spellbound. And then we're told that two men in white robes, angels I believe, and they say this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him 
go into heaven. In other words, it's visible. And it's not just a chosen few that's going to see it. Everyone who has ever lived will be there. Now, the reason I'm stressing this point about it being visible is because, as I understand God's word, there is only one second coming that is a visible coming. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus does return again and again to this life in acts of judgment, like the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70. And also, if you remember the letters to the seven churches, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus that if it doesn't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And he gives similar warnings. I will come to you, to most of the other churches. And in every case, that was an invisible coming. No one saw him coming. But they saw the results of his coming. But the coming that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25 is a visible one. Every eye will see him. And that leads us to the second question we must ask and answer. Who will witness this glorious coming? And Jesus answers the question in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And in these words, Jesus assures us that all the nations who have ever existed in this world will be gathered before him. And every eye will see him. In that numberless multitude, we will see him. And there's no exaggeration in these words. Every eye. Every eye means every eye. Everyone born on planet Earth will be present at his coming. And even those in this life who were born blind, they will be able to see There are two appointments that none of us can escape. Each one of us has to keep these appointments. Now, we all know what it's like. Sometimes we have an appointment we, we don't really want to go. And it's possible you can sneak away and not go. But there's two appointments that we cannot escape. In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once. Every one of us here this morning has an appointment with death. And we don't know when that will happen. It's definite. We're going to die. We'll have another appointment after death. Judgment. A day when we have to give account. A solemn account of what we've done with what God's given us. Praise God. These are appointments we can be ready for. If we take this graphic preview of Jesus seriously. Now never forget, the words of this preview were first spoken to Jesus' disciples so that they would be ready, not only for death, but for the judgment that follows death. And also they were spoken so that we, who are his disciples, would seek to do the same. 
for those who are not his disciples. That we would let those around us, the world around us, know that Jesus is coming again. And they're going to stand before him. And they're going to give an account of their lives to him. The great question that faces each one of us is this. Are we ready for that awesome day? Are you ready for that awesome day? The reason this is such a crucial question to answer will be obvious when we turn now and consider the third step in looking at this graphic preview. What will happen when this glorious coming occurs? Now, in actual fact, in the light of many other scriptures, there are many things that will happen. But in Matthew 25, the Lord focuses on only three things. He doesn't, in so many words, focus on this first thing, but there will be a resurrection of everyone born on planet Earth. Jesus only implies this by the phrase, all the nations. But the Apostle John makes this explicit by the testimony he gives in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now I can't imagine how awesome this picture will be. The whole human race descended from Adam and Eve, standing before the great white throne of Jesus Christ. And we're told, secondly, Jesus will separate this huge multitude into two groups, and only two groups. He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now you all remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. And he knows the goats that are not his sheep. He doesn't need anyone to tell him which is which. He doesn't need witnesses to testify who have lived as his sheep and who have lived as the devil's goats. He himself is witness to the life of each one before him. Just as he is the witness of everything, not just things you've done or things you've said, but every thought you've had, every idle word you've spoken, he knows it all. It's in his book. And thirdly, Jesus passes judgment on the lives of each one. Other parts of God's word clearly teach that each of us will give an account of himself to God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. But Jesus sums this up as a corporate judgment. He has already made this separation. And now he passes the judgment on each of these two groups. First of all, to the group gathered on his right hand. 
It's a sentence of welcome. A sentence of blessing. Come, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For some of us here this morning, these words are the most wonderful words you'll ever hear. And you will hear them. Spoken personally by Jesus to each person as if you were the only one there. But then you have the group gathered in his left hand. It's a sentence of rejection and cursing. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For some of us, these words are the most solemn and fearful words you'll ever hear. One day, Maybe sooner than any of us think possible, each one of us will be the subject of one or other of these two judgments. No other judgment is possible. There's no middle path. And most solemn of all, these sentences can never be changed on that day. It's either a sentence of welcome and blessing or rejection and cursing. My dear friend, I'm asking you earnestly to consider which sentence will you hear? Please take the words of Jesus seriously. He is the one who knows about these things in a measure that no one else does. And praise God, we're still living in a day of grace. That's why he's told us about these things. This is the preview. You don't need to be one of those in that company that are rejected and cursed. This sentence can be reversed. None of us need ever hear Jesus personally say to us, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The verdict can be reversed now, but it cannot be reversed On the day of judgment, listen to some other words of Jesus. Jesus says in John 3, 18, whoever believes in me is not condemned. But whoever doesn't believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let me repeat, that's a great question. Do you believe or don't you believe that Jesus is the only Son of God? Now your answer to that solemn question is the answer that humanly speaking decides your eternal destiny. And again I ask you, do you believe or don't you believe that Jesus is the only Son of God? Jesus promises, if you believe, you will not be condemned. But if you don't believe, you are condemned already. These are the only options. If Jesus returns today, 
What words is he going to say to you? Will it be the wonderful words? Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or will it be that fearful condemnation? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. On that judgment day, whatever these words are, they're final. If you're on the Lord's right hand, you enter your home in heaven. If you're on his left hand, you enter the eternal fire of hell. These are realities. I can't open your eyes to see them. But the realities, and the realities that we need to take seriously, how important it is that you're ready for the judgment day. If you're a believer trusting in Jesus for salvation, all is well. Praise God and thank you. But if you're an unbeliever, you'll wish that you'd never been born. And the good news is, you don't need to stay an unbeliever. Jesus is willing to save you and save you now. My friend, it's not too late to plead that promise. It's a promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And my friend, I plead with you, don't delay. Call on the Lord now. We're told who everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's no time to lose. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may well be too late. Tomorrow you may not be alive. Tonight Jesus may come again. Salvation is the gift of God. And it comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation. But if you want to be absolutely sure you'll be safe on The judgment day. Jesus urges you to think carefully about one final lesson. And we close with this. On the day of judgment, on what basis will Jesus judge you and I? On what basis? Now, after all we thought about in the last point, you would think the answer must be his judgment will be based upon whether you trusted him to save you or not. But that's not the answer Jesus gives us. He clearly teaches us we'll be judged on the basis of good or bad works. On the one hand, he tells a sheep, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And on the other hand, he tells the goats, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Now in the story, Jesus tells us both the sheep and the goats respond to these words by asking, when did we do these things? Or when didn't we do these things? And Jesus answered the sheep, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then to the goats, he says, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. Now this reply of Jesus to these sheep and goats sums up the crucial difference between the sheep and the goats. The sheep display their love for Jesus by their care of him and his brothers. And the goats show their indifference to Jesus by their ignoring Jesus' brothers on earth. And we must be careful that we don't misunderstand what Jesus said. He didn't teach that those who are saved are saved by their good works. They are saved by a faith that trusts Jesus for salvation. What Jesus does teach is that faith without works is dead. In other words, good works are the evidence that your faith is real. And notice, the good works that Jesus commends, they're not spectacular things. He's not saying, you prophesied, you cast out demons or miracles. All he's saying is simple love for Jesus. Shown by simple acts of love towards his brothers. When you and I do such things, we can be confident that one day Jesus will say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Dear friends, the next great event in history, great event, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And the great question we must all ask as we come to a close, am I ready for it? To be more personal, are you ready? And there's only one way any of us can ever be ready. We need to call upon the name of the Lord. And we're told, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise that you can totally rely upon. But there's no time to lose. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. There's one thing in my ministry that has always stayed with me. It was in the early days when the church met in our home. And we just begun to get some African coming along to the service. And on one particular occasion, I preached for longer than I usually do. And one of the people that came along afterwards took me to task. He said, you, 
you preach for an awful long time. Why do you preach so long? Well, I couldn't give him any answer, but I said, I, I preached what God had laid in my heart. The following week, he wasn't there. He had fallen down from the building and was killed. I'm telling you that because it's true. Now, I'm not telling you that's going to happen to you. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I am saying to you, I'm saying to you the importance of seeking God while he may be found. You're not promised tomorrow. The promise is now. And oh, I thank God that I can say, if you call on the name of the Lord now, one day you will hear Jesus say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. I just want to leave one thought in your minds. I think it's an important thought. Jesus, when he spoke to these wicked ones that were sent to eternal punishment and hellfire, he said it was prepared. Not for man, but for the devil and his angels. God didn't prepare hell for man. But many, many men will be there, I'm afraid. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Please, don't keep touch with the devil and his angels. Seek the Lord. You may be found. May God help you and open your eyes. I wish I could, but I can't. But I'm commending you, the one who can. Let us close our service as we think of the day of judgment. We sing our final hymn, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. Hark the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound.